there is a cake and coffee shop chain in the UK that's caught the attention of regulators and a few financial journalists in the past few months. It's called Patisserie Valerie. The company listed on the London Stock Exchange in 2014, and for the first four years after it went public, Patisserie Valerie's progress seemed, as many of my colleagues have written, as smooth as the icing on its cakes until late last year, when it emerged that its accounts were largely fictitious. Hello and welcome to Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today on the show, the FT's retail correspondent, Jonathan Ely, joins me to explain how a little-known British pastry chain became the front for an alleged £40 million fraud. So I was coming into work um, one morning in October and I get a message on my phone from the company's editor here at the FT who basically said to me, can you take a look at this patisserie Valerie thing? Something about accounting problems. And uh, I'd heard of Patisserie Valerie because there's a branch of it in the town where I live. Um, but here in the UK, we have a lot of uh, casual dining chains and coffee chains that are owned by private equity groups. And I had just blithely assumed that Patisserie Valerie was one of them. I didn't even realise it was a listed company. When I got into work, uh, I soon realised it was on the stock market, but it was owned, the majority shareholder was a guy called Luke Johnson, who is quite a well-known entrepreneur in the UK and straight away that made it a more interesting case and then over the course of that day in October um, I think it was October the 10th um, it the, the scandal became deeper throughout the day and so covering this company a cake shop something tells me that that wasn't always a part of your beat at the FT so my role at the FT is actually retail correspondent. So, I mean, I, it's not as if I'm short of things to do in my day job because the retail industry here and in the US and elsewhere in the world is under a great deal of pressure from rising costs and weakening consumer sentiments and the switch to online, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but we, it just so happened we didn't have anybody looking at leisure at the time. So Patisserie Valerie operates shops of a kind. So I ended up doing it and it became a much bigger story than much of the stuff I do in my day job. I mean, how deep is this likely to go? We don't know. I mean, it's, a, it's absolutely shocking because, because it looks such a clean business and it, because it was managed by two such reputable, experienced operators were overseen by them. Maybe we can start with Luke Johnson then. Who is he? Luke Johnson made his name with a with a deal in the in the 1990s uh, where he and, and some other investors took control of a company called Pizza Express. I can't remember the exact figures, but they took its value from something like 40 million pounds to 800 million pounds. And Luke is forever associated uh, with that particularly conspicuously successful deal. But the thing is, Luke also spent a lot of time writing columns. He wrote a column for the FT for a while. He wrote a column in the in the Telegraph, another British national newspaper, uh, and in the Sunday Times. And he had quite strong opinions on lots of things. He had strong opinions on things like bureaucracy, on corporate governance, on regulation. And many of this legislation and regulation that the EU likes to create is not good for job creation and not good for wealth creation. And how to run businesses and how to conduct yourself as an entrepreneur. And of course, when you put your views 
in the public domain like that, you'd run the risk of them being thrown back in your face uh, when something like this happens to you. And that has happened with a vengeance over the last few months. So we're talking we're talking about a successful businessman, certainly a big name in UK business circles. He goes and buys a cake shop. What is Patisserie Valerie? So Patisserie Valerie had its origins in the 1920s when it was basically a single shop in, in Soho in London, which is sort of quite a bohemian quarter of central London. And it was sort of favoured by sort of artists and writers and theatre types and so on. For a while, it was run by three Italian brothers, and it was them who expanded it to about six or eight stores, and that was main, still mainly in the London area. And Mr Johnson and his team turned it into a national chain. We've got chocolate flares, we've got a carrot cake, which is mine, and a mini Victoria sponge. It wasn't in the sort of takeout coffee market in the same way as, say, Costa Coffee or Starbucks was. It was very much a sitting-down place. And um, after the sort of expansion of the Johnson era, if you like, it became quite prevalent in, in what might be termed market towns, medium-sized towns in the UK, where, where you would find it on the high street or, or in a shopping centre. And so it was patronised by very much the sort of people that you would find in those kind of places. So tending to be either mothers with young children or older people uh, having a sit-down and a, and, a, and a cuppa, as we call it in Britain, and, uh, and watching the world go by. Partners and I bought the business eight years ago, and we've grown it from a small base, and we now have 140 retail branches all over the country. So Luke Johnson acquired Patisserie Valerie in 2006, and at that point he's only had about eight stores, six or eight stores. And it was a very small deal by his standards that went almost unreported. The chain then grew quite rapidly under his ownership, and it basically came onto the radar of more people in the media and in the investment world when it went public, which was in 2014. It sold shares at 170 pence each. And, and with the money you raise, hopefully through the IPO, you're, you're looking to pay down debt? Uh, we have raised. Uh, the money is in the bank, I believe. Um, <laughs> Mr Johnson and his, his other management team took a fair bit of money off the table at the IPO. Once it was listed, it grew fairly rapidly. It opened um, lots of new stores. Profits went up. There were dividends as well. The share price more than doubled. Everything seemed to be going swimmingly. And uh, we intend to fund new openings. So we plan to open about 20 branches of Patisserie Valerie a year all across Britain. Of course, it then became apparent late last year that the company's accounts were largely fictitious. Patisserie Holdings, which owns the Patisserie Valerie brand on the high street, it's an aimlisted stock. It remains suspended as we speak after what the company said was a significant and potentially fraudulent set of irregularities that's ended up in what's been reported on as a £20 million accounting black hole. Chris Boxer. So you're put on this story in October, October 10th, I think you said. What did you start to uncover? In the first two or three days, we learned both a lot and that we didn't know very much, if you see what I mean. We found out that the finance director had been arrested, but not yet charged. Mr Marsh was previously suspended by the company after it revealed it had found a black hole in the company's accounts. We found out that there had been a substantial fraud and that the company was very short of money. 
And what was striking about those few days is, is that it was amazing how much the companies simply could not tell us any more than that because they did not know themselves. I mean, you really got the sense that the, the management team outside of those perpetuating the fraud had no idea what was going on. They really were. The first they knew of it was when their bank accounts were frozen and the tax authority in the UK issued a winding up petition against the company. There has been an internal report. We have spoken to people who have seen it, but we still only really have edited highlights. What we do know is that although he was the executive chairman and although he owned something almost near almost 40% of the shares, he was actually relatively hands-off. He being Luke Johnson. He put a lot of control in the hands of the company's chief executive, a chap called Paul May, and its finance director called Chris Marsh. So there is a a sense that the two of them, possibly acting in concert, possibly not, were very keen to tell Luke what he wanted to hear, which was that the growth was solid, that profits were rising, that, that everything was fine. So what we know happened is that at its last results presentation, the company told its investors that it had about £28 million of net cash on its balance sheet. In October, we found out that it didn't. It had instead around £10 million of debt. Now, there's a £40 million difference between those two numbers, and that is really the central question. The, The cash just was not there. And the reasons for that, it appears, are that an elaborate operation was going on in the company to make it look a lot more profitable than it actually was. What can you tell us about this supposed elaborate operation? So there were uh, things that were paying checks in that, that subsequently bounced. They were paying suppliers and landlords as late as they could possibly get away with. It may also be that false invoices were generated that gave the impression that, that less cash was flowing out of the company than was actually the case. Jonathan, is there any sense of how long this went on for? Estimates vary, and uh, we've had entertaining internal discussions about this as well. It appears that the problems started in the 2015 financial year, which ran to September 2015 and carried on in the same year to 2016 and to 2017, and that basically the problems were were discovered then, presumably as the accounts were being put together for that financial year. It is possible that the misdemeanors stretched back further than that. And if that's true, that would be very significant because obviously, as I've mentioned, the company went public in 2014. So if they sold shares to investors at the IPO on the basis of accounts that turned out to be incorrect, they would be in a lot of regulatory and legal trouble over that. It would be slightly less serious, although clearly still very serious, if the fraud only started after the company went public. There are still so many unanswered questions. You mentioned, Jonathan, that you know they, they tried to string some of these suppliers along, hold on off on paying as late as long as possible. How did the suppliers react? Well, as you can imagine, since October, um, half of the UK's media, business media, has been assiduously trying to find out what actually went on behind the scenes. Big questions still remain. What is the involvement of the auditors? Should they have been kicking the tyres? Now, the company has been run by the same triumvirate of managers since about 2006, and they have not been speaking to the press. So it's been a question of piecing together 
details um, from elsewhere. And we have heard some very interesting stories that particularly suppliers, often those who weren't suppliers of fresh products. So if you're a bakery, you need lots of flour and butter and cream. And, and if your suppliers cut off supplies of those items, then your business is going to grind to a halt pretty quickly. But there are lots of other things like software and shop fittings and refrigeration equipment that have much longer lead times. And the suppliers of those things have told us that frequently payments were very late. They often had to recourse to the threat of legal action or actual legal action. One person told us that someone actually came to the company's head office in Birmingham, which is the UK's second biggest city, basically carrying a baseball bat and saying, I want my money, I want to be paid, and I'm not leaving the building until you pay me. And there were also stories of, of people crying in finance department meetings saying, please, just let us pay. Our suppliers were being bombarded with phone calls all day saying, when are you going to pay us? Where's our money? The next, I suppose, significant moment was that Mr Johnson organised a financial rescue. The cafe and cake chains being loaned up to £20 million by Chairman Luke Johnson. Whatever one's feelings about his conduct in, in this matter, it was enormously impressive, the speed with which he put that together. So he loaned the company £20 million himself and he organised a share issue that raised another £15 million from investors. Now, some of that money was used to pay off some of his loan. But even so, it was impressive, the speed with which that was put together. However, because of the circumstances, it did require approval from shareholders. And the meeting that approved that was, to say the least, entertaining. Because Mr Johnson and Paul May, his chief executive, and his two non-executive directors, basically had to sit there and endure a barrage of criticism from mostly private investors, individual people who had stood to lose a lot of money because of the problems. And they basically just had to sit there and take it because that's the way the, the meetings work. They got the approval through in the end. The money was um, was stumped up and the, the company lived to fight another day. But it was quite a, an interesting experience to see a man who is used to getting his own way basically just have to, to sit there and, and be told off by his investors. But 90 years after the first cafe opened, for now the future's been secured for 200 cafes and two and a half thousand staff. And is, is there any sense, do we know yet if Luke Johnson knew what was going on? So from what we have gleaned so far, it appears that Mr Johnson was certainly not involved in the fraud and possibly did not even know about it until, until the moment it, at which it was discovered. That statement is based on the, on the internal report into the accounting fraud, which has not been made public and which has been seen by very, very few people. It would appear that the finance director is the most culpable person. He is the person who's been arrested, though not yet charged, and he's the subject of, uh, of a serious fraud office investigation. The extent to which he had accomplices remains to be seen. We're told that basically five people were directly involved in the accounting cover-up, but that Mr Johnson was not one of them. So Johnson puts together this attempted financial rescue. What happened next? So at the meeting when he was um, fiercely berated by investors, he did make the statement then that the immediate crisis at Patisserie Valerie had passed and that basically the focus now was on getting the business into proper shape, getting its operations back on track, making sure that customers and staff were still able to go to the stores and, and eat and drink and so on. 
And uh, to do that, he recruited a whole bunch of people. Um, he re- recruited a man called Steve Francis, who is a turnaround expert with a, with a good track record in the food industry. Mr. Francis then brought in a new finance director, brought in people with operational experience. And they also changed the non-executive directors because there had been some criticism that the non-execs who are supposed to hold the executive directors to account were in fact a bit too close to Mr Johnson. They knew each other from a long uh, long time ago and it was all a bit cosy. And Luke Johnson also said he would cut back on his external commitments managing other companies and sitting on the board of other companies. And for a time it seemed that Christmas came and went, that the company was sort of slowly getting back on track people still in the stores, the stores were still trading, uh, and that this probe into the into the past and what had gone wrong was carrying on in the background. Although bear in mind, throughout all of this time, the shares were not actually trading. The shares have never resumed trading, and the people who put the money in at the emergency fundraising have almost certainly lost all their money. And then, just last week, came this statement that actually the accounting problems were more serious than thought and that the company was looking to extend its banking facilities again. In other words, they tried to get extra credit, extra access to extra cash from the bank. And then came the statement that basically the banks had not agreed to extend the banking facilities and therefore the company was being put into administration. And that as well came, I mean, not as significant a bolt from the blue as the first time round, but that in itself came as a surprise because I think most people thought the company was gradually getting its house in order again. Jonathan, where where are things today? So the where things are at the moment is that the company is in administration, so it's being run by KPMG, effectively. 70 of its stores have closed out of a total of about 200. 900 people have lost their jobs. And KPMG is trying to find a buyer for the remaining 120, 130 or so stores. That is proving difficult, I think, because of the past financial problems. It's simply not possible if you're a private equity firm or or an individual investor to go in there and look at the books and have any confidence that the company's past financial statements are accurate. People are being asked to make a decision about whether to bid for the remains of the company on the basis of a couple of months' management accounts. So I think what's far more likely is that companies will come and bid for packets of stores. So if you're Starbucks, for instance, or Cafe Nero or Costa Coffee or or any of the other multitude of casual dining brands in the UK, you will come and look at where the Patisserie Valerie stores are and you will say, well, we could do with a store in this town or in that city or in this shopping centre and just bid for packets of stores or even individual stores. I think Being broken up piecemeal like that is the most likely outcome for the company, Um, which is, of course, very sad for the for the sort of 2000 odd people who who still work for it. It creates a great deal of uncertainty for them. They don't know whether the stores they're working in will remain open or who will be their eventual employer. So you've been covering this closely for months. Do you have a sense yet of what the story is really about? I suppose it's about three things, really. It's about a company growing more rapidly than its systems and processes can support. It's about the very human tendency for people to believe what they want to believe and to see what they want to see. And it's about the peculiarly British tendency to want to take someone who's rich and successful down a peg or two. 
That last point you make stands out. Do you think that Luke Johnson has been brought down? Do you think he'll survive this? I think, I mean, he's had setbacks before. Uh, When you're an entrepreneur, there are going to be things that you will do that do not work out. And he's always been very open about that in his writings and in his, you know, in his columns and in his books. He's He's always said, you know, dealing with failure is part of being an entrepreneur. But I think the, the way this company has gone down will make his life very difficult. So I think it will be hard for him to return to the capital markets anytime soon. I think he'll have to do some, some purgatory. And I think his, um, his sort of personal reputation is somewhat tarnished. He's always been a fairly sort of uh, a figure that, who's divided opinion. There's, there are people who think he's a bit too much of a smart aleck, a bit too arrogant, a bit too full of himself. But there are other people who say he genuinely is a very, very effective businessman. He's very bold, he makes big decisions, he takes big risks, and his attention to detail is apparently amazing. He does still have lots of successful ventures, but I think this will take a long time to recover from. Read more on the Patisserie Valerie tale from Jonathan and others at FT.com. And let us know what you think. You can email me at BehindTheMoney at FT.com. And if you're not already an FT subscriber, you can go to FT.com forward slash offer to take a look at our latest subscription offer. And thanks this week to Jennifer Siegel and Eric Krupke for help producing this episode. We'll be back next week. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. Oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.